My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Pat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Well, the unpacking has uh, has started, mm-hmm. and uh, it's going pretty well. You know, we sold everything. We, we're downsizing. We sold everything yeah. that we could not get in a small 8x5 shipping container. Yeah, it's um, really weird to be in a space. And, you know, I like it. I'm not saying I don't like it. And I, I love Orlando. But it's so much smaller than what we're used to. <laughs> yeah, it really is. We had, uh, well, we really didn't use all the room we had. Uh, we pretty much just stayed upstairs all the time, but yeah, this is a tiny apartment compared to what we're, what we're used to, even though we didn't use the space before it was nice to know it was there. Yeah. Um, though I have to say that because we had so much just stuff in that house, Mm. unpacking has started to get weird. I noticed that as as the packing went along, I got lazier and lazier. And uh, toward the end, like there are boxes that aren't even labeled. I found a bag today that was a real look into our lives. What do you mean? It was like a Mickey Mouse tote bag. Mm-hmm. And inside was scotch tape, a bunion brace, mm-hmm. and a Halloween pumpkin carving kit. <laughs> we are downsizing, only keeping the necessities. Well, yes, obviously. Got to have that pumpkin carving kit. Well, it's Halloween quarter, sweetie. It, yeah, absolutely is. I want you to th- imagine that it's September 8th, 1860. Okay. The wee hours of the dawn. You are on one of those side-wheel paddle ships. Ooh. It's, uh, it's called the... P.S. Lady Elgin. This is fun. Now, you're coming back from uh, Milwaukee with a bunch of partiers, and you're sleeping it off. Milwaukee. And your ship runs into a another ship and sinks. Oh. Yeah. It was hit by the smaller schooner, the Augusta, which was loaded with heavy lumber, and it was headed to uh, Chicago. And it's also the capital of Maine. It is. The Lady Elgin second mate, M.W. Beeman, Uh, told the Chicago Tribune at the time, the vessel seemed to pay no attention to us. She struck us just forward the paddle box at the larboard side, 
tearing off the wheel, cutting through the guards and into the cabin and hall. And didn't stop? That's the weird thing. The Augusta just kept on sailing to Chicago as the Lady Elgin took on water and sank. Later, losers. (laughs) (laughs) Hundreds of sleeping passengers on the overpacked ship. Um, Most of them, you know, still kind of tipsy-doodle from uh, partying the night before, (laughs) were rudely awakened by the ship's crew banging on the doors trying to evacuate people. Frederick Rice, who was a steward, said, quote, everything that could be done to try to stop up the hole was done. Mattresses were pushed into the hole. The planks were spiked over, but to no avail. Too bad they didn't have a bag full of bunion braces and (laughs) Halloween carving kits. 300 people perished oh as a result of this crash including the uh, the captain of the ship his name was Jack Wilson oh, he uh, he spent the last few hours of his life trying to save other passengers I feel badly now making such light funness out of this death boat oh man yeah how cruel of you to point out the fact that uh, they had no jack-o-lantern carving kits since the uh, late 17th century there's been an estimated six to eight thousand ships that have sunk to the bottom of the great lakes with about thirty thousand lives lost wow. now some of these ships a good portion of them have mysteriously disappeared without a trace in a relatively confined region of lake michigan known bum 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 as the Lake Michigan Triangle. Oh my goodness. Had you heard of this? No. Me neither. No, the Lake Michigan Triangle. So all kinds of creepy type things happen there? Yeah, yeah. Is that where eels spawn? (laughs) That's the Sargasso Sea. That's the Bermuda Triangle. Different triangle altogether. (laughs) Now the three points of this triangle are marked by three different cities. On the Wisconsin side, there's Manitowoc. On the Michigan side, there's uh, Ludington to the north and Benton Harbor uh, to the south. No, it's not just shipwrecks, but all kinds of weird, unexplained phenomena and uh, frightening legends are related to this area. And this goes all the way back to the late 17th century when a French vessel disappeared, uh, never to be seen again. This is the first reported shipwreck in the history of the Great Lakes. The French explorer René Robert Cavalier Sieur de la Salle. Oh, wow. <laughs> he uh, commissioned the construction of a ship called Le Griffon. Oh, the Griffin. Yes. It was a massive ship, and it was designed to haul fur pelts during the, uh, the heyday of, you know, furring industry. The fur pelt days. Yep. In uh, August 1679, Le Griffon set out on its maiden voyage. It was going from Niagara to an outpost in the Straits of Mackinac. Um, Some historians also say that they were attempting to find a Northwest Passage to get to China and Japan, but it really doesn't matter because Le Griffon uh, vanished while traversing the Lake Michigan Triangle. Now, LaSalle had gotten off the ship. He had departed for the mainland, and he sent his crew and six members on the journey. Interesting. And the ship and the crew never heard from again. That, to me, says something fishy is going on, like some sort of sabotage. Maybe he had dumped too much money into the new ship. Oh, so it was like a... some sort of insurance. So you're suggesting it was some sort of a late uh, 17th century insurance scam. (laughs) All right. Well, in 2001, a researcher, his name was Steve Liebert, uh, found what he claimed to be Le Griffon's 
bowsprit at the bottom of Lake Michigan. It was elaborately carved, he claimed, uh, with a sculpture of a griffin, a mythical half-lion, half-eagle creature. His findings have not been yet verified. Aha. Uh-huh. And the rest of the ship has never been recovered or seen again. Then in 1891, there was uh, a ship called the Thomas Thune. It often sailed with some sister ships between the ports of Muskegon and Chicago. They shipped wood. They were owned by lumber barons. Okay. The Thomas Thune and the Rouse Simmons headed to Chicago from Muskegon to uh, to transport a load of lumber. They got there, they dropped the wood off, and they both head back to Muskegon. But a storm was a-brewing, and uh, the Thomas Thune said, we're going to keep going anyway, whereas the Rouse Simmons headed back to Chicago to wait the storm out. Well, when the Rouse Simmons returned to Muskegon, it was a couple of days later, and uh, there was no sign of the Thomas Thune in the harbor. Ah. So they're like, uh-oh. The um, lumber barons that owned that fleet, they put up a $300 reward for information on the whereabouts of the Thomas Thune. But the ship and its seven crew members were never found. They mounted several different search efforts to try to find the crew in the ship. Mm-hmm. It just totally disappeared. Until 2005. Oh, wow. A professional recovery diver found the intact remains of the Thomas Hune. Uh, It was located in the southeastern portion of Lake Michigan. And experts say that it uh, looked pretty much like they had just been overwhelmed by turbulent seas caused by the storm and capsized in the Lake Michigan Triangle. Now, so you said that other things happened, too. You know, we've talked about several shipwrecks now, but you said that other creepy stuff happens. And so I'm wondering if maybe, like, is there a a lumber and fur pelts loving band of mermaids? (laughs) Uh, What what else is creepy happening here? Well, we'll get to that. Oh, okay. The Rouse Simmons, the ship that survived, only survived for a little while. Oh, no. Sailing in the Lake Michigan Triangle on November 26th. 2nd, 1912, the ship and its 16 crew members, along with its captain, never made it to their destination. On the 23rd of November, the ship was seen flying a distress flag in clear conditions. See, I I thought you were just going to say the ship was seen flying, and I was like, holy shit! Yeah, that would be quite an experience. (laughs) It's a (laughs) Kraken! No, flying... A distress flag. Got it. But there were no conditions that would cause them to do that as far as weather goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a rescue ship was put together, organized. They sent them out to find out what was going on. They got out there and there was no sign of the ship anywhere. <gasps> the ship was delivering Christmas trees. And although they never found the ship, they found thousands of Christmas trees and the captain's wallet floating near the shoreline. Oh my goodness. Decades after it disappeared. That's creepy. So it's Christmas tree, lumber, and fur-loving mermaids. Okay, there you go. In October 1971, the Rouse Simmons was found by a scuba diver named Gordon Kent Belichard. It was off the coast of Two Rivers, Wisconsin. There's no official reason listed as to why the ship went down with its Yuletide cargo. But they think it's a likely combination of winter weather and uh, maybe they had loaded too many Christmas trees on the ship and caused it to uh, tip over. In October of 1921, a ship called the Rosabelle left High Island, Michigan. It was headed toward Benton Harbor, loaded with lumber. 
and it encountered some sort of disturbance along the way. They're not really sure what, probably weather-related, but its remains were found 42 miles from Milwaukee. None of the ship's 11 crew members were ever accounted for. Their bodies remain unrecovered to oh this day. Oh, my goodness. In 1937, the Cleveland Press reported of a strange incident in the Great Lakes Triangle. Captain George Donner was guiding a ship through icy and rough waters. And uh, it was April 28th. He wanted to get a couple of hours of shut eye, so he went to his uh, cabin. The first mate knocked on the cabin's door as they were approaching uh, Port Washington. It was early on the 29th of April. There was no answer. Uh, the door to the captain's quarters, it was locked. So they went to the galley to look for him. He wasn't there. No sign of him anywhere. So they, they bust down his door because it was locked from the inside. He wasn't in there. Huh. He disappeared. They, they never found his body. They don't know what happened to him. He went into his, his quarters. He locked the door. And he was never seen again. But you had asked, what else has happened besides shipwrecks? Yeah. Well, obviously, a missing captain. That's a, pretty A missing creepy. captain. That's one thing, yes. Although it is, it is ship-related. Uh, what about airplanes? Northwest Airlines Flight 2501 in 1950 was flying through the Lake Michigan Triangle, well, the airspace over it, not, you know. Right. Um, they were going to New York City, or no, they were going from New York City to Seattle. The plane uh, reached the east shore of Lake Michigan just after midnight on June 24th. The plane's captain, whose name was Robert C. Lind, asked for clearance from air traffic control to descend to 2,500 feet to avoid a lightning storm that was brewing over the Great Lake. Captain Lind uh, was denied. Oh. And then the plane vanished. Lind, two crew members, 55 passengers also vanished. Whoa. That night. When the plane disappeared, a local of uh, South Haven, Michigan, uh, told reporters that he saw a terrific flash out in the lake. It was a strange light. It was also seen by others. One of them said, quote, it was a funny light. It looked like the sun when it goes down. It only lasted a second and then it was gone. It was the worst commercial airplane disaster of its time. Bits of debris and tragically body parts um, oh. floated to the shore in the days and weeks after the airplane disappeared. Now, it's assumed it crashed into Lake Michigan, obviously, because of the storm that it flew into. But subsequent searches have resulted in no discovery of the airplane. Fiction writer Clive Cussler. Clive Cussler? Yeah, you like Clive Cussler? I have. Okay. He funds a yearly quest to retrieve Northwest Flight 2501 from its watery grave. Really? Every year, he sends out a search team, and every year, they come back empty-handed. Well, Lake Michigan is 118 miles wide, and 307 miles long. Yeah, it's a big body of water. 22,406 square miles. Now, along with untold numbers of missing ships, and in this last case, a plane, um, there was a guy, his name was Stephen Kubaki. And in February of 1978, he was reported missing. He was a student at Hope College. He had begun a uh, cross-country ski expedition. But he disappeared. They swept the area looking for him. They discovered a set of footprints that led right to the eastern shore of Lake Michigan and then just stopped. So, of course, they thought he probably 
fell through the ice or something. His skis and his backpack were recovered nearby. Everybody thought, well, that's what happened. He fell through the ice. But then, to everybody's amazement, Kubaki woke up in a grassy field 15 months later and 700 miles east in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. What? He had no memory of where he'd been for 15 months or how he ended up so far away from home. His last memory was that he reached the shore of Lake Michigan and then he woke up 15 months later in a grassy field. He refused to discuss his situation, even after he'd been rescued. And to this day, he remains silent about what happened. He won't talk about it. So nobody knows what happened to this guy. And there's speculation that he doesn't even know. Maybe he remembers, but he's not talking about it. He doesn't want to talk about it. What was his uh, money situation right about the time that he disappeared? Was he in an unhappy marriage? Tell me about his uh, his business dealings. Was he a gambler? I think he was uh, a descendant of 17th century insurance conmen. <laughs> now, this area also ranks very high with UFO sightings. According to WOOD TV. <laughs> I'm sorry, those call letters. Wood? There's just so much you could do with that. Yeah, I'm sure the Wood TV uh, news team provides stiff competition. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, they're based out of West Michigan. Uh, according to them, Wisconsin police have been receiving complaints of UFOs over Lake Michigan since, are you ready for this? Yeah. 1913. Oh, really? In 1919, there's a New York Times article reporting two colossal balls of fire seen falling into the Great Lake. Now, the paper speculated that they were meteors, but other eyewitnesses said at the time they chalked it up to, quote, metaphysical forces wreaking havoc. The Sausalito News in California said that, quote, the rumblings from the impact were heard as far as South Bend and LaPorte, Indiana. Goodness gracious. Now, more recently, Michigan residents along the shores of Lake Michigan have reported seeing disc-like objects, some of them flashing, hovering over them in 1994, May, uh, March 8th, in fact. One of the witnesses was a local National Weather Service radar operator. He said, quote, I've never seen anything like this, not even when I'm doing storms. He said, these are not storms. And then finally... Here's something really weird. In 2007, underwater archaeology professor Mark Hawley told reporters that he had discovered a circular stone arrangement in 40 feet of water while using sonar technology in search of shipwrecks mm -hmm. in the uh, Triangle area. Along the outside of the rocks, he found a boulder marked with prehistoric carvings of a long-extinct mastodon. Well, that's cool. They were extinct 10,000 plus years ago. Who carved it? Why does it look like Stonehenge? And why is it underwater now? They're calling it Lake Michigan's underwater Stonehenge. They continue to research and explore that area. The structures are in a location that is being kept secret for now. Some speculate that uh, it may have had some kind of ceremonial purpose. Others thought maybe it was something as simple as a dam to dam up a river that was there at that time to make mm -hmm. fishing a little bit easier. But no matter what, this yet-to-be-explained configuration is just one more strange thing that has happened in this area. What's going on in the Lake Michigan Triangle? 
I got most of my information from Ranker and Wikipedia. And now, that thing in the middle. Thank you for calling. Today's thing in the middle, weird phone facts. Number five, mobile phones are dirtier than toilet seats. Number four, the first mobile phone cost about 2,500 pounds. And it weighed that too. Number three, scientists can charge phones using urine. Number two, we check our cell phones about 110 times a day. And number one, more people have cell phones than toilets globally. Ah, summertime. You're at the pool, lake, or ocean. You have your sunscreen, new book, and favorite beverage. Then you awaken to find ants have eaten half your left foot. And you're headed to the emergency room. Ah, summertime. This is The Box of Oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? 
I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. We got a message from Adrian on Instagram. Hey guys, I recently discovered the podcast after it being given a shout out on Scared to Death by Lindsay and Dan Cummins. Thanks guys. And fell in love with it. I've made my way through most of the catalog now after starting from the beginning, which yes, Kat is correct. That is the correct way to go. Uh, Y'all's banter is a couple of goals, blah, blah, blah. I was recently listening to Box 334, and I heard you guys talking about radiation being measured in bananas. I thought it would be of interest to you to know that this is how the military measures lifetime radiation dosage. My fiancé is a nuclear mechanic on a submarine, and he informed me of this a little while back. And I thought he was lying, LOL. (laughs) Apparently, they're only allowed a certain amount of bananas during their life of service. (laughs) That's fascinating. That really is. Thanks, Adrian. Tori sent us a message on Facebook. I just started listening to your podcast last night and randomly picked this episode to listen to. And she's referencing uh, the Black Hope Cemetery uh, episode. This afternoon, I was watching Unsolved Mysteries on Hulu, which only has around one third of the episodes. And guess what episode they played? The one about this land development. You guys weren't kidding when you said there is a box of oddities phenomenon. (laughs) Such weird timing, considering I've been watching Unsolved Mysteries for a month. Anyway, love your podcast. Yeah, the box of oddities effect. That has really taken on a life of its own. It's crazy. It's strong. It's strong. (laughs) No, the defense is wrong. (laughs) We've been watching a lot of hotel TV. What you got for me, girl? I want you to picture Mm -hmm. 1846. It's August. Okay. It smells bad. (laughs) Yes. Because it's, well, 1846 and it's August. That's right. And Alexander Swan and Anne Graham are having their first baby. It's a very exciting time. They're Scottish immigrants, and they give birth to Anne Swan in a log cabin in Millbrook. She's actually their third child. They end up having 13 in total. Oh, my God. I guess back then you had to because every other baby would die. 
in those days. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, right. That's a yeah. fun fact. Anyway, you just there we go. Tossed out there. Nineteenth yeah. century infant mortality is hilarious. Anne's <laughs> Anne's birth weight is debated. She was either eighteen, sixteen, or thirteen pounds. Hard to say oh, for sure. Wow, it was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. By the age of four, Anne was almost five feet tall. On her eleventh birthday. She stood six feet, two inches tall. Holy crap. By the time she was 16, Anna towered over her parents and her 12 siblings. Now, this is at a time when the average male's height was about 5'6". In the mid-19th century. No, I don't think that's true. Anyway, due, this was probably due to excess growth hormones uh, because there was likely a problem with her pituitary gland. She grew to a height of 7 feet 11 inches. Holy crap. Or 2.4 meters. Anna learned to cope with her great height by taking the advice of her maternal grandmother, who had said, stand tall and be proud of your Highland ancestry. Anna excelled at literature and music, and she was considered to be very intelligent. The average height of a man in the 19th century was five foot eight. And now back to Katrina Walls. And also excelled at her studies of acting, piano, and voice. I keep calling her Anne. It's Anna. I'm so sorry, Anna. Anna. Pretty soon, she got a job with P.T. Barnum's American Museum in New York City at the age of 17. This was in 1862. She was billed as the Nova Scotian giantess. On July 13, 1865, the popular New York City Museum caught fire, and a museum employee came running up from the basement and announced that his office was on fire, the flames quickly spread, and soon smoke was just pouring out of the building. The way you are bobbing up and down is so distracting. (laughs) Sorry, it's this blanket over my head. Yeah, that fire, that's what inspired uh, P.T. Barnum to get into circusing. Oh, was it? Yeah. Um, So firemen quickly evacuated visitors, but Anna was in and was being exhibited at the time and she was trapped on an upper floor. The stairs were in flames and she was too large to escape through a window. Firemen were unable to carry her to safety because at this point she was about 340 pounds. Oh, my God. Because she's a very, very tall lady. So they just blew a hole through the wall. An outside wall was demolished and a crane was called to facilitate her rescue. And that must have been absolutely terrifying. Oh, I would imagine. What what floor was this? I don't know. It was the top floor, you said? It was an upper floor. Upper floor. Yeah. I think that was about five stories. Something. I want to go ahead. I'll update you in a minute. Okay. So this was scary for sure, but Anna returned when... P.T. Barnum rebuilt his museum. Of course, she was making a really good living and uh, got back to work. But soon there was a second museum fire. Not another one. Another one. And Anna was like, yeah, um, that's I think that's enough of this museum. (laughs) So she quit the business for a time and she returned to Nova Scotia. However, in 1869, 
Barnum invited her on a tour of the United States. She later toured all over America and Europe with a troupe of Barnum's entertainers. She was often paired with Tom Thumb, who was... Um, oh, I've seen those pictures. Yes. He was about 3-4 and uh, born uh, near our friends in Bridgeport, Connecticut, by the way. It appears as though the P.T. Barnum Museum was oh, five stories tall. And now back to our story. So obviously the two paired together uh, really accentuated oh, each yeah. of their size. Anna Swan was visiting a circus in Halifax when she was spotted by a promoter and she was hired on the spot. And why wouldn't you hire her? Not only was she graceful and intelligent, she was very, very huge. Mm -hmm. This was a production that Martin Van Buren Bates was a part of as well. According to the Human Marvels, Martin Van Buren Bates was charming, soft-spoken, and eloquent. He also happened to be nearly eight feet tall. He was known as the Kentucky Giant. Oh, yes, I remember that guy. I mean, not personally. I read about him. Sure. The giant couple became a touring sensation. And, of course, they fell in love. Aww. On June 17th, 1871, in St. Martin in the Fields in London, Anna and Martin married. The two were showered with wedding gifts. Anna's wedding dress was a gift from Queen Victoria. Oh, my God. Yeah. It was wow. a big deal. It wasn't a hand-me-down, clearly. I, I wouldn't imagine. No, no, no. no. Though Queen Victoria was, she was tall, right? Not that tall. No. Well, no, not that tall. No. She wasn't a giant. <laughs> <laughs> not physically, but no. she was a, a no. giant when it came to queening. I feel like you're just being contrary to me today. No, so. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I came here for an argument. <laughs> you're just being contrary. <laughs> I am not. <laughs> The gigantic couple settled in Seville, Ohio, where they bought a farm. Oh. And they had a huge house built. I'll bet. Complete with custom furniture. So the main part of the house had 14-foot ceilings. The doors were extra wide and were each eight feet tall. The back part of the house was built in average size. So the front part was where they lived and did their stuff. Mm -hmm. But the back is where like guests might feel more comfortable <laughs> <Yeah>. because not <laughs> everything was enormous. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a bit intimidating. You want to go over and visit that uh, tall couple? No. <laughs> no, no, I don't. I feel really insignificant when I'm there. <laughs> Their fireplace is terrifying. In 1872, Anna gave birth to her first child. The little girl weighed 18 pounds, but unfortunately did not survive long after birth. Mm. There's your infant mortality. Oh, see, now I, I'm really... That, yep. Wow. Yeah. yeah. In 1879, the couple had another child, a boy, and he was the largest newborn ever recorded at 23 pounds, 9 ounces. Um, but sadly, wow. he did not survive either. Oh, uh, no, I feel like a real shithead. Yeah, you should. Right. Good. Um, the two would sometimes tour for a bit during the summers, but they spent most of their remaining years in Ohio in their custom home, quite happily in love. Anna taught Sunday school at the Baptist Church in Seville, and Martin managed his farm. In 1888, one day before her 42nd birthday, Anna passed away unexpectedly. They think it was some sort of heart mm. issue. 
her husband, Martin, obviously very upset, uh, prepared a monument to his wife. Atop her grave towers a 15-foot statue of a Greek goddess. Oh. Yeah, which is kind of, you can see how, you know, he thought of her as his Greek goddess or whatever. Anyway, uh, Martin passed in 1919 at the age of 82. Well, he lived a good long life. He really did. I think the average lifespan in the 19th century was 40 years. I don't think that's true. I'll update you. So anyway, Martin died in 1919. And though he had later remarried, he insisted that upon his death, he be laid to rest next to his beloved Anna. Which I think must have sucked for his second wife. And the gravedigger. <laughs> Stop. What? what? Is it too it's, soon? Come on. I'm sorry. Anyway, in June 2009, the Giantess Anna Swan Museum opened in the new Creamery Square Heritage Center in Tatamagouche. That sounds like a euphemism. Yep. Um, it houses some of her dresses and focuses on the tallest married couple in the world and their life together. That's wonderful. Isn't that nice? That is a great... Is that house still available to go visit? Um, no, it was torn down. Oh, that's and, too bad. Yeah. But you can go see her dresses well, that's something. in Tatamagouche. Let's go to the Tall Lady Museum in Tatamagouche. Is that how you said it? Tatamagouche. Tatamagouche. Which, when I first saw it, I my brain went... Tata Maguchi. <laughs> and then I went, yeah, you should figure out how to pronounce that. <laughs> anyway, I got most of my information from Smithsonian, Wikipedia, Historic Nova Scotia, and thehumanmarvels.com. It's hot in here. It is. This is our last Blanket Fort episode. We'll have our regular equipment set up pretty soon if we can find it. Yeah, but I don't know if we're going to be able to have the entire setup organized, so we might be in a Blanket Fort no. just over there. Oh, no. <laughs> We'll see. <laughs> Either way, we look forward to hanging out with you again. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, we wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2021. All rights reserved. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science. And as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. 
Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.